0: As you'll see in your bulletin, our epistle lesson continues on in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Hear the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father. You alone have the words of life. Where else might we go? And so we pray, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we continue on in your journey through Ephesians this summer season, and it's important to be aware of where these verses fall. In a very real sense, this is one of those few passages that gets pulled out when a young couple are about to be married. It's something that is grabbed out of Scripture and taken and put to use to address those who would prepare for marriage or those who would seek to deal with the many struggles that all of us face and some of the Herculean challenges that we might face at times in marriage. But it falls in the middle of an argument. Paul is addressing how we grow up in Jesus Christ. Paul is summoning each and every one of us to maturity, to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Paul is ever aware that it only happens as the body, each part working itself properly as it should, builds itself up in the great love that we've sung about this morning. That's the context for Paul now at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 to speak about relationships, relationships like marriage, relationships like that of parent and child and master and slave, various relationships that are ordered and structured that are the, the context in which so much of our life is lived. If we're honest, though, I think most of us at times, we tend to be tempted to think that spirituality occurs in the exceptional and the spectacular, as opposed to the everyday. We tend to think that God is watching when we're in this room and we've our Sunday best on, when we're marking out some liturgical holiday, or we're setting our day apart for some particular church activity. We tend to restrict the spiritual to the spectacular and the exceptional. Perhaps you know the story of the man who heard over the PA an announcement that the waters from a dam they had broken through and they were approaching his town and the situation was dire and he, like everyone else, should flee to save their lives. But he was a man who loved God, and he knew that God would save him, and so he stayed. And the waters reached town, and a neighbor raced over in his canoe as the waters were starting to rise above the floor of of his home. And he said, my friend, the waters are rising. You're going to drown. I have a canoe. Jump in, and I'll save you. And the man said, No, I trust God. God will save me. I'll wait. The waters continued to rise, and the man had to move to the top of his roof. And before long, a helicopter came by. And over the microphone, he could hear the waters are rising, and you will drown. Grab hold of this ladder. And we'll take you to safety. And the man screamed out, I trust God. I'll wait for him to save me. And he stood there on the roof as the water rose. Well, it's a bit of a downer to start a sermon this way. But the man died, my friends. And as he reached heaven above, he came with a question. As God was there to ask why he might be admitted through the pearly gates, he said, but Lord, I want to ask... I've trusted you. I believed you would save me as you always have. Why did you leave me to drown in that town? And God said, I sent you an announcement and a canoe and a helicopter. What else are you waiting for? The man clearly believed that God and his deliverance would be spectacular It would be spontaneous. It would be exceptional and completely out of the blue. Whereas God's grace, God's provision, was through the ordinary means, the regular pathways of human provision. Don't we all, in different ways, big and small, on Sundays and every other day of the week, tend to think that spirituality and grace They occur on the mountaintop when God so often wants to speak to us as we're there in the valley or in the various byways of life. I'm reminded of the words of the theologian Shirley Guthrie. He said, any spirituality, including supposedly Christian spirituality, that retreats from the world into the self-serving piety of a private religious life is a false Spirituality that flees rather than seeks God. True Christian spirituality cheerfully and confidently plunges into the life of our dirty, sinful, confused world. There is where we meet the spirit of the triune God who's present and at work not to save us from, but in and for the sake of that world, the world that was and is and will be God's world. Well, here we are, friends, at the end of Ephesians 5, and Paul is aware that we are children of light living amidst a very dark world, and there will be repercussions for being so. There will be challenges and bruises, and so Paul warns them, we saw in verse 15, not to, not to give up hope, and as his argument continues, he warns against drunkenness, but to be filled with the Spirit, a passage you explored last week. Don't get drunk. Don't tap out. Don't sink somehow to drink away your sorrows, but don't think that you can make it on your own either. Don't think you won't face opposition, that you won't be bone tired. And so be filled with the Spirit. Seek the life-giving, sustaining power of God as you bear the challenges of the day. And we see the Spirit filling the Spirit pouring over in a number of ordinary practices. Things we've done already this day as we pray, giving thanks to God for all things. As we sing hymns, psalms, spiritual songs to God's name. As we submit one another out of reverence for Christ, we read in verse 21. I want to explore with you the spirituality of submission. This morning, the way in which this passage is going to take our various relationships and our responsibilities therein as occasions for God's Spirit to fill you up. Now, there are also occasions for your sinful nature to turn you away from each other and to turn your gaze downward away from God. But miraculously and gloriously, we can see that they are also means of grace where God seeks to be present in the everyday, not merely the exceptional. Now that verse, verse 21, the verse that comes just before the passage I read, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, it uses a word that we as modern American citizens, as we North Americans and Westerners, we tend not to take to that notion of submission. We tend to think that happiness involves life and liberty, that it demands independence in every which way. We have a, an innate itch to kick against any authority that would seek to call us to submit to them. We tend to believe that we ought to be able to set our own sails, to go our own direction. We tend to think that each of us ought to be quite capable to determine what we're to do and when we're to do it. You might be familiar with the story of the the CEO and his wife. They had journeyed well outside the big city. She'd been asked to go and uh, speak at a high school reunion. And so they had traveled about an hour and a half outside the big city in their luxury car, and they'd gone to the event, and it was fun. And before they returned, they had to stop at a gas station to fuel up, and an attendant came out. An attendant was fueling up the car for them, and suddenly the wife realized that it was a high school boyfriend of hers. So they exchanged pleasantries. Mentioned what had been going on, they told stories of the last couple decades, and they parted and said goodbye as the CEO and his wife got in the car and drove off. At that point, the CEO started to chuckle. His wife said, why why are you laughing? He said, what? I was just thinking about how you're lucky to be married to me and not be back there still with him. At which point, his wife chuckled and continued to chuckle awkwardly long. His joke wasn't that funny, and so he asked, well, why are you still chuckling? And she said, well, I was just thinking about how if I'd married him, he would have been a CEO and you would have been back there at the gas station. (laughs) All of us tend to assume that we're the center of the story, that others are there somehow to do as we wish. It's innate. We see it from Eden onward. And my friends, we ought to be honest. We ought to be aware that while Jesus himself, our Lord and Savior, tells us that whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it, more often don't you and I struggle with the fact that we take up the words of Lucifer himself, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Milton's description of Satan there in Paradise Lost is so poignant and powerful, describing the insidious ways that we often will insist on going into foolhardiness and pain for ourselves and others so long as we can be in control. It can take the form, of course, of narcissism and really extreme practices, but we can experience it in small doses. The temptation to hold on to the steering wheel, the temptation to refuse to submit to anyone or anything. We oftentimes struggle with believing that a life marked by submission of any form could be a life that leads to happiness and abundance of life. It's interesting. The Italian thinker Augusto Donoce points out that the word authority originally derived from Latin and German would refer to making something grow. Now in the modern world, when we speak of an authority, we speak of something that represses or keeps us down. Isn't that a remarkable inversion of how we take that idea from growing and maturing, flourishing and flowering, to being held down and choked off, as it were? Friends, it's in that context that God gives us relationships where we are bound in mutuality to each other. It's in this context where we struggle with sinful temptation that God places us in relationships that are meant to be stable context for sanctifying growth. We see that here in Ephesians 5 and 6 or in Colossians 3 and 4 Or in 1 Peter 2-5, through these passages where various relationships in life are described, where our bonds to each other remind us of our interdependence and call for our attentiveness to each other. That's why C.S. Lewis in his great sermon, The Weight of Glory, said that the load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. He speaks there of our interdependence. The fact that we, we all have a mother. We all have neighbors. We all have various relationships that mark our lives good and bad. They speak in the good of how we receive from others. They testify in the bad and the pain of what we're meant for and haven't haven't sadly experienced. They remind us of how we are not an island. We are a community. We are a family. We live in bonds of mutuality. And God calls us, order those loves and to honor one another, to live as becomes the children of God. It's interesting here in verse 21, speaks of how you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This idea gets picked up again in verse 22, you as a wife submit to the husband as to the Lord. Chapter six, verse one. A child submits to a parent or obeys a parent in the Lord. Or in verse 5, as you would Christ. And in verse 7, as to the Lord. These notions are repeated again and again that we respect and honor one another, not simply according to the merit or demerit that someone has earned or failed to earn, but we do so, we show honor as unto the Lord. In other words, we trust that God has placed us here. We trust that God means for us to grow here. We trust that God means for us to be capable of love here. We trust that our earthly situation, however frustrating, is a part of God's plan. There may be big changes ahead. There may be massive repentance required. There may be much healing needed. There may be justice that must be served. All of those things are true, but they do not discount the fact that this is a part, nonetheless, of God's plan to sanctify each and every one of us. And so we trust the Lord and show reverence and submission one to the other. Now, in Ephesians, there are three different relationships that are going to be explored. And next week or in weeks to come, two others will be explored more fully. This morning, we look at the first case study, marriage. And I'll only spend a couple minutes on it. I want to rather speak more broadly, introducing this whole section, what's sometimes called the household code. And there's a couple things to be aware of before we look at precisely what's said first to a wife and then secondly to a husband. And then as Paul pulls back and he addresses all of us. The first thing we've got to say right off the bat before exploring this is to say, this is a description of the ideal. And all of us who experience marriage, all of us experience less than ideal marriage at times, And some of us experience less than ideal marriage seemingly all the time. And there are other passages that address ways in which problems, desertion and abuse and adultery, significant unfaithfulness that can and does arrive even in this, the household of God. There are other passages that speak to that. Now this presents an ideal, something all of us can pray for, for those in the pew, those of us in the room with one another, praying that this would increasingly be the case more and more for those brothers and sisters around us. This is also an ideal, and for those of you who have suffered much in marriage, for whom hearing this arise is yet one more reminder of how painful things have been. This ideal actually serves to validate the significant pain that we can feel. Because marriage is God's idea. It's not a happenstance arrangement. It's not something we've cooked up legally. Long before there were statutes and laws, there was God himself who instituted human marriage. And he has designed us to share life and happiness in this way. And not surprisingly, when it goes awry and when sin occurs, we rightly experience real pain. And so hearing of the ideal ought to help bolster a sense that you are not imagining the pain. That that's real because God, God had better designs in store. And other passage, passages address the way in which sin and pain and struggle and a desertion and abuse, they are addressed in repentance, in discipline, and justice, and so forth. Second thing to observe here, this is a passage about how a man and a woman relate to each other. Notice the repeated pronouns here. There are possessives. For instance, in verse 22, it does not say that women submit to all men, but it says very specifically that a wife is to submit to your own husband. This is a statement about how a singular relationship is to be ordered and lived. This is not some generic statement about masculinity and femininity that that marks every relationship in every sphere of life. This is a particular relationship. As we'll see, there are going to be similarities in the next passage when we turn to parents and children. I have a son with me today. I relate to him differently from other children in the room, and appropriately so. I want to be loving and civil to everybody, but there's a certain responsibility to my own child and he to me that is singular. That said, this one relationship between a man and a woman is not a personal or private relationship alone. What we're going to see is that it is a singular relationship that has sizable significance for many others. We'll see that as we see how the passage concludes. Before we get there, though, let's slow down and look at what Paul first says to a wife and then what he says to a husband. He addresses the wife first, which would have been radical in this time and place, First, that the woman would have been addressed at all. Secondly, that she would be addressed first, shown honor in being taken seriously, in her concerns being addressed directly. In a world, the first century, where men could pretty well do whatever they wanted, and women were consigned simply to do what a husband wished, this is challenging, to say the least. But there's challenge also for the wife, for every Christian. What does Paul say? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We see here that there is a submission and verse thirty three says a respect that is to be given to her own husband. As he leads, as he exercises responsibility, there is not to be contentiousness. There is not to be contempt. There is to be a trusting embrace that God has designed this relationship to function in a certain way. And notice. This is not happenstance. He doesn't say this will get you ahead in life. He doesn't say this is the way civilized people do it. He says, rather, this is a great mystery that pictures the relationship of Christ and the church. God has designed marriage this way. And so living in this manner is an impulse of trust. But he goes on and he does address the husband. Beginning in verse 25, he says, "'Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word.'" He goes on, and he concludes in verse 33, again, saying, "'Let each one of you love his wife as himself.'" The husband, far from taking the wife for granted, Far from using or objectifying the wife is to love her, to attend to her, to consider her growth, her sanctification, her flourishing and maturity, and to lay down his own very life. Not simply his money, not merely his time, but to give his very self sacrificially that she might Be happy, healthy, mature, and whole. We see that here, the husband in exercising leadership does it not for his own gain. But he exercises leadership as Christ exercised leadership. In taking the knee first to wash feet. And taking to the cross to give his very life on behalf of his beloved So Christian husbands are to take what responsibility they have and to use it not for their own gain, but for the sake of their spouse, that their wife might flourish. We see that this is actually standard fare nowhere else in the world, but here alone in the New Testament, this idea that the use of authority or responsibility is always for the sake of building up others, not one's own self. So why in a church, for instance, the pastor ought to be the first person to not care if he particularly likes the music. Other people matter more than the pastor who gets to choose. A father is the last person whose own personal opinion or preference matters. His judgment and principles matter in building up others, in blessing them, in laying down his own way for the sake of others in displaying the kind of Christ-like posture that looks a lot like someone hanging on a cross. For each of us, there is a spirituality to marriage here, a call to submission on the one hand and sacrifice on the other, to learning, to learning that we are not the center of things, to practicing resurrection by willingly laying down our lives for other, trusting that we will find it on the other side. And that brings us to where Paul concludes this passage. Verses 31 to 33. Some of the most remarkable short words you'll ever read about marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying It refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We see here the mystery and the mission of Christian marriage in these verses. Marriage has a purpose or a mission. Now, every society has found various uses for marriage, which is universal. But notice what isn't highlighted here. These other things aren't denigrated. They're not dismissed or rejected, but they're not the point. Marriage isn't here named for its value in bringing about child rearing or for its economic benefit or its social bonds. It's not mentioned for the way in which it can direct our romance or provide a appropriate space for sexual activity, or a commitment that brings companionship in our later years. All good things not mentioned here. All things highlighted by cultures throughout the ages. But Paul identifies something more central. Marriage is a mystery, a sacramentum or sacrament. It's a sign. That's all that means. It's a symbol. It's a display of God and his people, of Christ and his church. Illustrating the kind of love that is shared, that brings profound unity, even the unity of one flesh across gendered difference. Illustrating the kind of covenant love that God transcendent has shown in coming down, in taking on frail form, In doing everything necessary to atone or reunite us with himself forevermore. Marriage is a glorious human display of what is spiritually true for every Christian. And that's why marriage matters not just to married people, marriage is there for married and single alike. For those who've had happy marriages and for those who struggle in sad marriages, marriage is meant to be a pointer to God's love for us in Jesus Christ. That means there's great purpose in marriage. It's not simply about you and your spouse learning to vacation together, learning to spend leisure time together, learning to raise children together, learning to experience romance together. Marriage is ultimately about loving one another in such a way that those around you, whether they be children in your house or neighbors in your neighborhood or sisters and brothers here at Christchurch, especially where they be non-Christians who don't yet know The strange and glorious love of Jesus Christ, that they would see that relationship. They would observe that trusting submission, that dependent self sacrifice, those stable bonds of mutuality, that deep love that is steadfast through the years. And they would see something that is true of God. They would see a small sign of His gospel. And friends, knowing that mission is precisely what motivates that self denial. All of the Christian life can be summed up, John Calvin said, as self denial. And this is nowhere more true than in marriage, where there is submission and sacrifice, where stability always comes at a cost. It always involves bearing with one another in love and gentleness eager to maintain the bonds of unity. We see here that we're willing to undergo that kind of commitment. We're willing to take up that cross because it has purpose. You perhaps remember when you were training to play an instrument or to perform in a given sport, And you were told to go and practice scales for hours or to go through drill upon drill out on that field. And no one just likes to get calluses. And no one enjoys up-downs for the sake of up-downs. But we do those things because there's a purpose, because there's a greater mission, because there's a goal that bears real significance, that we might be able to play that piece Well, that we might be able to compete as a team with excellence. And so we go through the rhythms and we willingly enter into the pain yet again. And so it is with marriage. There is a greater mission and purpose for the kind of care and love and forbearance that we show each other. And that motivates us, that motivates us to forgive. That motivates us to attend to the other's needs. That motivates us to put aside our own preference, sacrificing it for the other. That motivates us to submit and to not allow resentment to grow. That motivates us to love in all the many ways that Scripture calls us to, precisely because we have a mission to display the glorious mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That life and submission, they really can be a part of the pursuit of happiness. However strange that may sound to our American ears. Precisely because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel that changes everything. Because he has risen to new life. Let's pray and ask that he might bring and work resurrection in our marriages and our hopes. Lord, we confess that so often marriage is a hope for a future. Marriage is an occasion for regret in our present and past. You care for all these things and you show deeper compassion than anyone and so we long that you would enable us to cast those cares upon you. And Lord, We confess, too, that often we take marriage to be about convenience and preference, about funding just the right person who scratches our itch and makes us happy, and we pray that you would give us a sense of the purpose and mission of marriage that's bigger than any one of us, that's greater than simply the kind of consumeristic ideals we so often settle for. Help us to pursue the holiness of our spouses. Help us to see and perceive the glorious goodness of your gospel on display in marriages around this room. Help redeem those experiences that have been harsh and sad and work resurrection in our midst, we pray, not least in our households and in our marriages. For we know that there. There your spirit is, there your son is, there your grace is, Lord, sufficient. And so we pray all this in the risen and strong name of Jesus, amen.